Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Eyes of the Dragon, sections 58 through 93. Let's start the show! Peter puts his plan in action to escape the needle. Thomas's butler, Dennis, learns an important secret and tells Pena. He then does his original master a service. Pena enlists Ben Stodd, an old friend of Peter's, in his plan to right a wrong. Jay, we talked in the first episode on the Eyes of the Dragon that the first quarter of the book was all about setting up the characters and introducing everyone and their place in the larger story. So we got the four members of the family and Flag. The second section in our last episode was all about setting up the conflict between those characters, ultimately leading through the death of Roland the Good, Peter being put into the needle, and the consequences of that. Thomas becoming king, Flags pushing his the rest of his agenda. In this section, we start to get the climax of the events. Everything's coming together. This is sort of the, the plan in action. Peter's got his plan that's going on on one end, from inside the jail, and on the outside, uh, Pena, along with Dennis and Ben Stodd, are working from the outside to get in to help Peter. So everything's sort of mm-hmm. coming together. What's been interesting about this is that there's been a shift in who our focus has been on. So in yeah. the first section, we focused a lot on Roland and Thomas's perspective and flags. The second one was much more flag and Pena and Peter. And here we get a lot of Pena, Dennis, and um Flag and Thomas are hardly in here at all. Yeah, I mean, this section of the book could almost be the Pena arc, mm, right? Yeah. And one of the things that stood out to me was that that Pena has an arc at all. And I thought that this was a nice achievement on King's part in that he decided to give this what could have been a very minor one-dimensional character an actual arc of growth and development. And looking back on the Pena that we meet in the beginning of the story, he feels one-dimensional. He starts out that way. He's this really uh, strict, by-the-book law type, and it's his ruling that moves Peter's story forward. It's it's ultimately through his legal powers that Peter is imprisoned for life. Um, Another writer or a writer interested in different things in the story could have just had Pena's character come and go. Like He just happened to be the, the judge in that part of the story, and we never hear from him again. Right. But King keeps him around and gives him some time to think about what he's done, maybe what he should have done differently. And by the time we get to the end of this section of the book, Pena is a very different character. And what kind of kicks that off for us is the letter that he receives from Peter. Right. Which has two key lines to it, the first and the last. And the first is, I have decided to live. And the last is, I did not kill my father. Right. And this is what puts, I don't think it puts doubt necessarily in Pena's head at this point, but what it does do is make him realize that Peter has certain kingly qualities to him. And we've talked about this already, Mm -hmm. but it's what puts at least a little pause in Pena's thought process here. Like, okay, 
I made a judgment based on the fact that I saw him crying and all the pieces were in place. There was obviously more to this boy than that. That wasn't him breaking. That was something else. And here he still expects to be treated like a king and Mm -hmm. he does have a certain right. So I will play along with this and give him the things he asked for. And we learn that he's only asked for two things. One is to have napkins at every one of his meals. Hey, it's the napkins. It all makes sense. It's the napkins. Uh Uh-huh. And two, the dollhouse that he played with, his mother's dollhouse that's somewhere in storage. And he thinks about it, and Peña's like, yeah, no problem. We can get you that. That's minor things. And the way you're acting as a king, certainly you will. At least as a royal, even if a disgraced royal, you can get those things. Yep. So that starts off Pena's piece. And then we see there's really sort of a jump of five years, right? We get a little bit of what happens in those five years, especially from Peter's perspective, as he talks Mm -hmm. about making the rope. But from Pena's perspective, we lose track of him. And when we see him five years down the line, he is a much different person, as you said. Um, He has been pushed out of his job as solicitor general and is now living on the outskirts of the main city, Mm -hmm. trying to stay out of sight. he knows that he is not necessarily welcomed by flag, and also that the townspeople, or the people of the kingdom at least, think that there's something about him. He either knows something about flag, or he's about to get killed by flag, and so his status within the kingdom has fallen. And furthermore, that tiny seed of doubt that he had five years ago has now blossomed fully. Yes. Maybe I didn't do the right thing. And he can start to see that the kingdom is in a much different place. And this is the more important thing about that is that when Pena is presented, he sees his role as keeping the kingdom intact and that there are laws to do that and that those laws are black and white. And so in order for the kingdom to remain important and and secure and stable, there must be judgment on who killed the king and that judgment must be taken quickly so there's no doubt in the people's mind that the monarchy will reign. And so he knows right away what I need to do is find out who the person is and, and deal with the consequences. Now he's had five years to think about it. He realizes maybe that's not the right route I should have taken. And maybe Peter isn't as guilty as I thought he was. Right. I think another fundamental shift for Pena in his arc is that he remains the person who thinks that the kingdom itself, the preservation of the kingdom is paramount. What changes in him is what he's willing to do or not do, the lengths he's willing to go to fulfill that mission means in the beginning of the story, in the beginning of his arc, that meant upholding the law to the letter. Right. Now he recognizes that to fulfill his his foundational mission of preserving the kingdom, maybe he needs to break the laws. Maybe he needs to become an outlaw himself. I think that's where Pena's arc comes to its full bend, where the magistrate general or whatever his title was, um, is now an outlaw and the very power that he had in the beginning of the story that was that enabled him to convict a king is now being what is what, what is left of that power is now being used to perhaps help a king escape from prison mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting arc and it makes peña a really interesting character and now he's somebody who went from someone we were sort of rooting against because he stood in the way of the protagonist succeeding in his natural course of events to one of the heroes of our story, helping the protagonist to maybe finally gain the proper justice that we know he deserves. Cause, cause we, as the audience know that Peter is innocent. 
And it also ties into Flag's story. So last episode, we talked about how Flag's pride might be what his downfall is. Mm. And that Flag showing Thomas that secret passage where he could see his father's room is what leads Thomas to see Flag kill his father. And so Thomas knows that Peter's not the one who did it. But furthermore, the only reason that Pena is alive, at least in Pena's opinion, is because he believes that Flag wants him to suffer. Flag could easily kill him, but since Pena is an old man, he sort of welcomes that. He's like, I, I don't know what happened to my life. I'm old. I'm, I don't have the power I did. I should probably be dead, but I have a feeling that Flag's keeping me alive because he knows that I will suffer more that way. And so letting Pena stay alive is ultimately another piece in what at least we think is going to be Flag's downfall later to come. Yes. And as we're talking about Pena and as the story spends a lot of time with Pena, we're also reintroduced to Ben. And Ben is Peter's childhood friend. They were the closest of friends. They won a (laughs) three-legged sack race together. And I think King is, you know, while wearing his uh, I'm telling a fairy tale story, I'm telling a story that's full of morals hat, um, he's saying a lot of things here about friendship. Mm. He's saying, what does it mean to... He's exploring what friendship can mean and how two people can be very close and mean very much to each other. And uh, King even has a line as the narrator where he says, I think that real friendship always makes us feel such sweet gratitude because the world almost always seems like a very hard desert and the flowers that grow there seem to grow against such high odds. So King's saying like friendship is something that's special and rare and should be treasured. And I think those are all things that we can get behind very easily. And I think it's important that, you know, in that stating the obvious in a in a moral way uh, that he does in fairy tale mode it, he's saying to the audience of his 13 year old daughter like this is what friendship means this is why friendship is special mm-hmm. and remember that king wrote this story and dedicated it to both his daughter naomi and her friend ben straub uh-huh. who is the son of stephen king's friend peter straub so there is this outside friendship as well that's being put in here and Ben Stott is obviously named after Peter Straub's son. Right. Um, there's another line about the friendship that when Peter like tests the strength of the rope he's weaving and it seems to be able to hold his weight, which this is like the key test for his whole plan. And if that didn't work, the whole plan's out the window. Anyway, he thinks to himself, he didn't believe his heart had been so full since reading Ben's tiny note. So this is a really important moment, an emotional moment for Peter of testing the rope. And it stands the equal to the emotion that he felt reading Ben's note. And then there's the moment when Ben arranges to be one of the people carrying the dollhouse into the the prison cell, just so that he could be within a few feet of Peter and they could make eye contact. Right. And to me, this also seems to have like almost like a a low key queer element to it. Mm. And I don't know if King meant to do this. And I know that there are a lot of stories, movies, books that were maybe never intended to be a queer story. And this might be another one of those. Um, But it feels like the emotional connection between Ben and Peter has some of those undertones. Yeah. They're both presented as heterosexual males, but their love for each other is so strong that they 
they long to just touch each other when they're in that prison cell together and they both weep openly at the sight of one another. To me, that can also read pretty easily as two lovers finally getting to see each other in person after a very long absence. Right. You know, and they did have their legs tied together in that sack race and fell down in that temple and things got a little mixed up for a minute. <laughs> yes. So as, as we were discussing this and thinking about it, it did point out something to me, which is King was writing this for his daughter. Mm -hmm. And there's a considerable lack of women in this story. Yeah. And there didn't need to be. There's the mother who died, you know, who's dead when the story starts. And we only get a little bit of her in flashbacks. And we meet at the end of this section, a girl that is guarding the farm where Ben, Stodd, and the other rebellious families are hiding out. Mm -hmm. But other than that, there are no named women, I don't think, in the story. Uh, previous queens and stuff? The previous queens, I guess the butler's wife. Ben's mom. So it made me wonder why King, writing a story for his daughter, didn't make a woman character a main character or, or the hero of the story even. Um, it just seemed a, for somebody who's writing about friendship for his daughter, there would be an opportunity here to write about a girl or a woman in one way or another. As I said a moment ago, there didn't need to be an absence of women. And I don't say that meaning that certain types of stories or certain plots need to have men in them. But what I mean is there is absolutely no reason why King couldn't have added a whole number of female characters to this story. I could see falling back on the excuse like, well, a king needs to be a man in the fairy tale. But in the very world of this fairy tale, there have been queens. Yes. Just one generation back, Roland the Good's mother was the, the previous queen. So why not make Peter's character a girl and then give her a name that's, that rhymes with Naomi? Yeah. And she's the protagonist. She's the one who's wrongfully accused. She's you know the rightful heir to the throne. And now you've got opportunity to explore other things. Like, why did the bad guy frame her? Because he's like sexist and doesn't want a woman to run the kingdom. So it has opportunity for, for more depth. And so it's disappointing now. And I know we're looking back at this thing that King wrote all those years ago through our year 2020 eyes. But With 2020 hindsight? Yes. <laughs> Damn you. I purposely said it the way I did to not make a pun. Um, but that doesn't mean like... Like why why did King just default to this? Yeah. To to these these gender roles and these these gendered characters. It could have been interesting if Ben was a woman. Yeah. Because then you subvert the whole Rapunzel thing, right? Like there's a man in the tower who needs to be rescued, and it's the woman who does it. We could swap out anybody or even swap out multiple characters. Pena could have been a woman. Why not the the, the highest ranking legal official in the kingdom is a woman? And then She's part of the frame job without realizing it. And then her steadfast loyalty to the kingdom and the law is the moral battle that she fights for years and ultimately comes around to helping the main character, right? All these opportunities, these all could have been women and yep. none of them were. No, nope. just none of them. So part of this is that King is relying on some fairy tale tropes and some fantasy tropes, you know, male kings, male princes. All mm -hmm. that stuff. And it's also in the narration how King continues to 
use this as a way of showing I'm a storyteller telling a story. So he addresses yeah. us, the reader, multiple occasions saying things like, dear reader, I hope you sleep just as well as Dennis did on those napkins in the storeroom. And if mm -hmm. I were a better storyteller, I would be able to tell this in such a way that would be better for you. But I can't because I'm not. Um, yeah. And so this whole meta commentary that exists is interesting. My favorite example of that is that there's a line. It seemed to him that this note must point the finger of guilt at flag and set him, Peter, free. A little reflection convinced him that while that might happen in a storybook, it would not happen in real life. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, but this is a storybook, right? Like how many times can the snake eat its own tail here before everything collapses? But this still works. And that's why this is cool. I love what King's doing here. Because whichever level you are in, that's your real world. So if, if you're us reading this story, it's all fiction and anything could happen. But if you're Peter, you're in his world. So that's his real world. And it's not a storybook. So yeah, anyway, it's turtles all the way down and it's awesome. Yeah, it's it, Inception. We were, we're, we're through, uh, yeah. through the looking glass on all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me again, as we're reading this, just how much King nails the tone of this story. Yeah. It just has that perfect fairy tale princess bride feel to it. And I'm still sort of shocked that this had never been turned into anything because it could have made a fun little movie, I think. Yeah. Um, and I know it's in production now, but I, I even read uh, this week that there was a French company that was going to do an animated version of this. Oh, that would have been cool. Like the 80s Hobbit. Yeah. I'm wondering if it would have been like that because, you know, the time frame would have worked out and that could have been a really interesting look and feel. And I, I even wonder if you could do different art styles for like when the storyteller's telling the story versus when you're in the piece to sort of visually show those different layers of the story hmm. lots of cool opportunities so i i hope it does get adapted in some way because i do think it could be fun visually there's a lot of cool things going on with the needle and you know the the dollhouse we didn't talk about peter's plan is to basically take little threads from the napkins and then use the loom that is in the dollhouse to create this rope using a braiding technique that his mother taught him years ago to create mm -hmm. this really strong rope and just like the visuals of this dollhouse that he's working in and this giant needle that he's imprisoned in. I think there's some really good opportunities for some neat visual tricks. Um, King also lays all these foreshadowing, you know, like things along the lines of, well, if only our hero Peter had known about where the napkins were coming from, things might've turned out different because he could have finished two years earlier. And we're left wondering like, what don't we know? Yeah. Turns out that the storeroom has literally hundreds of thousands of napkins they will never ever run out and that's what he's using so all these cool little things that that he as the narrators is excited to tell us about but doesn't want to share it too quick because of the story purposes it all fits into that mm -hmm. i liked how that was even an, uh, an occasion where i i felt like he was hanging a lantern on that because he needed a reason for these napkins to exist and then he needed a reason for there to be a lot of napkins yep. so he just said screw it i'll make so many napkins that they would never run out and no one would even notice that they were gone. In fact, they're throwing them away instead of washing them. Yep. You know, so it's just like, I, if I'm going to go for this, I'm going to go big, right? It's the sort of thing that would appeal to a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old reading, right? Like, yeah. guess what? There's a room that's so big and it's like Scrooge McDuck's vault, except instead of gold, it's filled with napkins. 
<laughs> and one Dennis. <laughs> and they've been embroidered with the royal crest on them. And there's a little old lady sitting out front unstitching that because they don't want him to have the royal seal on it. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jay. Well, there are a few Dark Tower thinnies that we should probably get to. Yeah. So one of the Dark Tower thinnies that I wanted to talk about was that Ben Stad's mother, wife of Andrew Stad, is named Susan. Mm. And I didn't catch this earlier, and maybe we just weren't introduced to her by name until this section of the book, but here's a Susan. Like, how many times has King put a Susan in his books at this point? It feels almost like every single book has a Susan. And she's not a main character, but she's one of the as we mentioned earlier, the three or four named female characters in this entire book. So of the few names that there are, Susan's one of them, and here she is. There has to be a Susan in Stephen King's past that's like Charlie Brown's little redheaded girl that Uh he obsesses over because it's just too much of a coincidence to there always be either Susan or Susanna in all these books. It's just... It's not that common of a name that you would think it would come off as often as it does. Yeah. Well, here's another thinny that is one that you and I both noticed. And at the moment that Dennis follows King Thomas into the secret dragonized spy room, um, because King Thomas is sleepwalking with a guilty conscience, and Dennis being the ultimate butler wants to make sure that his mm-hmm. king does not get into any trouble. Um, because he's thinking about Flag, Flag has a nightmare. Yeah. Even Flag has nightmares. And he wakes up, even though he's miles and miles away on a hunt for the rebels, he wakes up and, and realizes something's wrong. And the narrator says, worlds sometimes shudder and turn inside their axes. And this was such a time. Mm. And you just get that feeling like there's a momentous event that's happening. And of course, that would be of interest to the Dark Tower and, and Flag. And so the worlds shudder. Just a n- nice little hint that this is a much bigger multiverse that we're a part of. Yeah, that just gave me goosebumps. The imagery that it conjures in my mind is like a a, a lightning strike. Like it, it's finding that conductor path to ground. And it's like the thing that Thomas is doing is that lightning strike. And it travels along the, the length of the Dark Tower and then back out to flag. And it's because of the, the power of the Dark Tower that it's the the axis upon which all things revolve yeah. that that it conducts that at least for flag bad news right <laughs> and and without the dark tower without the multiverse without the the things like the beams flag couldn't have known about this even if it was only unconsciously yep we had a, a similar moment when dennis is trying to sneak back into the castle mm-hmm and he says, you know, he thinks to himself, I hope I get in without Flag finding me. And the moment he thinks Flag's name, he feels this like coldness come over him and a hawk overhead makes a noise. Yeah. He feels a shadow come over him and he's like, oh shit, I better not even think that. And Flag like sits up like. Somebody just called my name. Yeah. yeah like Who just said my name. And this is similar to what happens with the character of Randall Flag in The Stand. There is a similar moment like that where even thinking his name is something that will draw his attention from all over the place. Mm. And ultimately, that's also along the line of the Lord of the Rings, right? Like if they're thinking about Sauron, like the red eye starts to follow them and and can see them. I I think it's a a fantasy trope of some sort, but 
it's played to good effect here. Yeah, I mean, it was first pioneered in Beetlejuice, but... (laughs) (laughs) You you gotta draw your inspiration from something. Yes. Uh, Another Dark Tower thingy is that when Dennis is crawling through the sewer pipes, the narrator says, if Dennis had entered one of the sewer pipes a bit closer to Flag's apartment, he might well have died himself. Perhaps it was luck that saved him, or fate, or those gods he prayed to. I'll not take a stand on the matter. Ah, fate, luck, intervention of gods. Sounds like Ka. Very much so. And also, a stand on the matter? Hmm. Yeah, there's all sorts of uh, connections between Randall Flag, the stand... The Dark Tower all coming together here in this one little section. Yeah, it's almost like it's a multiverse that's all connected (laughs) by the Dark Tower. Indeed. All right, well, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who are supporting our show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Who do we have as new patrons, Jay? Uh, We have two new patrons, Sean. Um, The first one is Dustin M., who signed on at the gunslinger level. Thank you, Dustin. And also Sharon L., who also signed on at the gunslinger level. Thank you, Sharon. Excellent. Well, they can look forward to new podcasts every month uh, that are exclusive on Patreon. And we also list names of our top patrons on the Support the Show page of our website, which, as a reminder, is twoguysetothedarktowercane.com. Yes. Thank you both, and uh, thank you to all of our patrons. Jay, I think it's time for fun stuff. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start because you had just mentioned about uh, Dennis entering the sewer pipes. Okay. And there was a lot that was happening in this section that reminded me that this story seems like a kid's version of the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, it did. We've got an unjustly imprisoned uh, person. Mm -hmm. Peter, in fact, is trying to escape. And at one point, he's trying to figure out how much rope he needs. And he does all the figures in his head. And Ira was reminded that Andy Dufresne was an accountant and really good with numbers, just like Peter is. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection there. We have Dennis going through the sewer pipes to get into prison instead of out, like Andy did, but but the same sort of idea here. Um, The arc with Pena that we were talking about before is sort of along the themes of the Shawshank Redemption. When I worked at a drugstore that rented videos, there was a guy who came in every Tuesday, because that was when the new videos came out, and he would get all the new videos and watch them and bring them back the next day. He was a retired guy, and he got the Shawshank Redemption, and I remember he and I had a long talk about it, because he said, you know, this is a really, really good movie. I'm like, I agree. I love the movie. It was great. Mm -hmm. And his point was like, the only problem is, is that Andy Dufresne was judged and put in prison and he shouldn't have tried to escape and that was wrong of him he should have stayed in prison (laughs) (laughs) and and my thing was i think you're missing the point of the story which is the guy was unjustly in prison and so he felt that he was within his rights to try to escape but but his whole thing was like nope you have to live with the consequences of whatever happens and it made me think of consequences yeah it made me think of pena too because same sort of thing right like there's that theme of there are times when I may be following the law, but the law is wrong. Mm-hmm. And even though Thomas and Flag are in charge, I might need to join the rebels because they're what's right for the kingdom, even if the kingdom has laws that say that I shouldn't be doing this. 
And so there's another connection between Shawshank. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. It also reminded me of It and The Losers Club. Hmm. They spend a lot of time exploring tunnels and aqueducts and sewers. And the monster lives in basically the sewer, or at least deep underground, and uses the sewers to get around um, different places easily. So there's an echo here of the Losers Club, basically. Um, Dennis maybe is a one-person Losers Club in this instance, (laughs) or maybe it's Dennis and Peter and Ben all working together. They're the Losers Club with Pena as the, uh, I don't know. um, (laughs) What what is he, the, the patron? Yeah. The metaphor might fall apart with Pena, but yes. Yeah. All right. So we'll leave we'll leave Pena out of the Losers Club. But um I know connections to other books like The Stand and It don't really count as thinnies, but it's fun to see how these things have echoes and connections to other Stephen King books. Yeah. So do you have any fun stuff, Jay? I do. We get another opportunity for an, an Odenkirk title announcement. <laughs> When Dennis is following Thomas when he's sleepwalking, they end up in the space to spy on the the king's living room. And when Dennis sees the slot open up and reveal the peepholes, the line in the book is, to Dennis, those holes looked strangely like floating eyes. (laughs) And that's when Bob Odenkirk pops up and says, eyes? Eyes of the dragon, you mean? (laughs) Good stuff indeed. Yeah. Um, another thing that I just kind of lumped into our fun stuff section is Peter's rope, like the rope itself. Mm. I found myself, this is is not me uh, like criticizing anything, but I just found myself wondering how should I imagine the thickness of the rope? Is it something that is so gossamer thin that it belies any possibility of being strong enough to hold Peter's weight? And that's part of the the magic of the story it's part of the magic of peter's craftsmanship it's it makes it all the more impressive that he can make this rope that is like a spider web or something right but because of his ingenuity and hard work and the intricacy of the the dollhouse loom that it actually still works even though it's that thin or is it just that he makes a rope that's you know like a shoelace thickness but still impressive still thinner than you kind of want a rope to be to hold up the weight of a of an adult. So I'm kind of trying to figure out which is the more impressive thing. And if I were, say, adapting this into a movie and I was talking to somebody in the props department, how would I instruct them? Like, do I make it like the spider web or do I make it like the shoelace or something in between? I just don't really know where to come down on this. I think either one would work. Yeah. It's very thin no matter what. Yeah. Because I mean, he's taking what, five threads at a time mm-hmm. and then braiding them into rope? I mean, we could probably figure it out if we'd said, oh, an, an average napkin would be about 12 inches by 12 inches. So the threads are 12 inches because he does all the math, right? We could He needs to go 300 feet, give or take 20 feet because he's willing to jump mm-hmm. and he's making this much a week and this much a month and da-da-da-da-da. But yeah, whatever the case, it's very thin. And I think a lot of weight is put on well, my mom taught me this special braiding technique with the over, under, and over, under, and through, and Mm -hmm. that's making it even stronger than it normally would be. So, yeah, but it is very thin. And when Peter's standing on it, they say, when he's testing it, like, if somebody were to look in, they would see him floating there because they wouldn't be able to see it. So, I imagine it's fairly small. Okay. 
Well, listeners, if you have an opinion on this, uh, <laughs> send us your feedback at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. I had a, a little uh, WTF moment here. There is apparently eyeglass technology in the story. So wherever Delane exists in the, the world of time, and I guess as part of the same world where Roland is from, hmm. that there was a time before where there was really advanced technology and now things have regressed and maybe there, there's less. But like the whole Stad family seems to suffer from bad luck and bad eyesight. Like they all squint their whole lives. Right. When we learned this, I just chalked it up as, okay, well, this is a fantasy story set in a pseudo medieval period. Nobody has eyeglasses. And then there's a scene when the Stad family is sitting around in the house after dark by the fire. They're just doing their evening like relaxation stuff. And the dad is wearing reading glasses. <laughs> this is a long-winded way for me to say, what's going on here? If they have glasses, give everybody glasses. If they don't have glasses, don't have glasses. I guess it's possible that you could have simple magnification and that might work for reading, but doing something for distance isn't possible. Mm. But anyway, like, what the heck's going on here? Yeah, seems like another bad editing problem. I mean, he just wanted them to have that moment of like, you know, knock on the door and yanks the glasses off. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting a knock on the door at this hour. <laughs> and then my final fun stuff is there's a moment when we learn that one of the former kings of Delane, Alan, died when he was struck by lightning while playing cubits on the back lawn in the pouring rain. And this was the evidence of how he was like a mad king. Mm -hmm. But when I heard about somebody like playing a game on grass in the rain and is struck by lightning, I of course thought of Caddyshack when the priest misses his putt and he yells, Rat farts! <laughs> And is struck dead by a stroke of lightning. Anyway, I read this about the Mad King Alan and immediately thought, rat farts. That, that's classic. Classic Caddyshack. Yeah. And I'll bring it to my final fun stuff then. So Alan was part of Flag's plan to ruin Delane earlier. Mm. So he had done his machinations to get Alan on the throne and Alan was a Mad King. But luckily for the kingdom of Delane, this lightning hit. And in his stead, since he did not have an heir, was, I believe, his niece, Kyla the Good. Mm. And Kyla the Good brought back Delane from the... The brink of destruction? Yeah, the brink of destruction. Um, and she realized one of the first things she had to do is so many people were out of work, is that she had to make work for them. And she is the one who then said, okay, everyone's going to have a job. And since there's a lot of old people with nothing to do, she said let's make napkins. And so that is Ooh. why there are all these napkins. And so I thought that that was like a nice touch that we're, we've seen a little bit about how Flag works here, getting people into the throne. And he talks about how Thomas, who they were calling Thomas the Lightbringer when he was ascended to the throne, within a month, they're calling him Thomas the Taxbringer because he's instituted all these new taxes. Flag's moving very quick here uh, yeah. to, to bring down the lane. And you can get... It, it reminds me of the uh, Disney Robin Hood cartoon with the fox because very quickly Nottingham is going bad with the sheriff um, collecting all the taxes and everyone's moping around or in jail. And so uh, we're at the, the down part of the lane here. But hopefully things will change in our in our next and final episode on the Eyes of the Dragon. 
And that will be it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we conclude The Eyes of the Dragon, sections 94 through 142. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Do you want to say we'll cover the eyes of the dragon? Did I not say the? You did not. The, the, the. Or the, the, the. The, 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 the. Is it the or the?